Before we turn to the reading of Holy Scripture, let me call your attention to the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism printed in the bulletin. Brief introduction to that. The word mortification there is uh, perhaps a term that we don't use very often. It, It means the putting to death. What is the putting to death of the old man? That is to say, how do we deal with the sinful nature within us? How do we put that? What does it mean to put that to death? And again, that word uh, in the second question, quickening, the coming to life or the, the continuing life of the new man. So with those uh, definitions in place, let us uh, be instructed from the catechism. You see the scripture references printed below. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. This Instruction from the Catechism is chosen as an introduction to the reading of Holy Scripture and to prepare us to focus our minds on this reading and to hear the Word of God this morning. So, let us now ask the Lord's blessing, uh, because without the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we can neither uh, rightly receive the Word of God nor rightly respond to it. Our Father in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, because he died and rose again for us and is ascended to your right hand as our Savior and our mediator and intercessor, that you would pour forth the Holy Spirit upon us afresh, truly to open our minds to the truth of your word and to open our hearts so that we might receive it in true faith and grant us grace uh, that our souls might be strengthened by it so that we might live according to it by the power of your Holy Spirit to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning we read again from Romans 8, 1 through 11. Let us hear the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. It is written, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of our God stands forever to His name. Be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Last Sunday, I quoted from John Stott's commentary on Romans, and again this morning, I want to begin by reading his comment, which says, quote, The Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. End quote. But now let me repeat that last sentence. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Now that raises the question, for me at least, what does Christian life in the Spirit, again, in the words of John Stott, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit, what does that look like in the everyday life of a Christian? What is the evidence that you and I are actually living in the Spirit? Or to ask it in terms of Romans 8, am I living, am I walking according, in accord with the Spirit? According to the Spirit, in accord with the Spirit? This passage has to do with living the Christian life. It's not academic. It's not theoretical. It's real. It's practical. It's personal. That's what we want to dig into this morning. It's interesting that in this passage, Romans 8, 1 through 11, when the scripture here speaks of walking or living according to the Spirit, it's not referring primarily to experiences of uh, personally uh, subjective situational, circumstantial leadings and and nudgings and intuitions that have to do with uh, particular, specific, detailed concerns or decisions of our personal life when we're seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we we speak of being led by the Spirit in this way, and and, and that is a reality of the Christian life. And and I believe that we in this congregation corporately have, have been led by the Spirit in certain decisions that we've been made. By the way, our, our, our session, our elders, uh, w- went away for an overnight retreat, and we had a great sense of the, the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, with us as we made certain particular decisions about um, the, the future life of the congregation. But I say that to say that's not what this passage is speaking of. That, that's a reality, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage is speaking more broadly more generally, about all of our life, every day of our life, every step of our life, if you will, for everybody who is a Christian. According to Romans 8, now this may surprise you, according to Romans 8, this passage, this life in the Spirit is characterized, first of all, by a Spirit-empowered obedience to the law of God. 
Now, does that surprise you? I don't know if you were expecting that. Listen again. The law of the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never set us free to fulfill it. But by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh, executed judgment upon it. In order that, in order that, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, there it is in verse 4. The purpose of our justification through the condemnation of Christ on the cross and the renewal of our lives by the Holy Spirit who sets us free from the power of sin, the whole purpose and goal of that is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit, living in the Spirit, living by the power of the Holy Spirit is defined in this passage as Spirit-empowered obedience to the law of God, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, everybody, push the pause button. (laughs) In case you have not been here for the last 28 sermons... Let me assure you that most of those sermons have emphasized, you can tell me, justification by faith alone through in Christ alone. Romans 3.20 says, by works, of the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So this isn't about being justified by works or salvation by obedience to to God's law. No. Paul has already said that that's hopeless. This is not about obedience to the law as a way of salvation. What is it about then? It is about a new way of life for those who know that they have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ a new way of life for those who have experienced the saving grace of God in their life and have experienced the liberating power of the Holy Spirit in their life. It is a new orientation of life, a new direction of life, a new motivation for life, a new trajectory of life in response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and empowered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What Romans 8, 2 through 4 tells us is that the death of Christ not only paid the penalty for our sins, but also set us free from the dominating power of sin over our lives. So that we who walk according to the Spirit might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Now that, that raises another question, doesn't it? Well then, what does it mean? to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. First of all, note that the righteous requirement of the law is singular. It's not plural. So this doesn't have to do with the multitude of ceremonial laws of Old Testament Israel, 
uh, nor certainly the, uh, the multitude of oral tradition, the oral laws that were added to do that. No, 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 no. This singular righteous requirement of the law refers to the great sum and great summary, the great point of the moral law of God in the Ten Commandments. It's summed up in one word, love. To love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now this is the summary of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The abiding moral law of God. Love God, love neighbor. This is the righteous requirement of the law. And at its heart, it is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of love. Love for God. Love for neighbor. Love which motivates us to live a life pleasing to God. Because of who God is in His great grace and mercy toward us. Love for our neighbor because in our neighbor we behold the image. Of God. So this is obedience which comes not as the result or in response to um, external compulsion or threat. This is obedience that does not come from fear of punishment, but obedience, happy obedience, willing obedience. Joyful obedience which flows from a heart of love, love for God and love for neighbor. And this is precisely what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. For the Holy Spirit is the spirit of divine love. That raises another question. But do we? Do we love God perfectly with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Do we love our neighbor perfectly as we love ourselves? Of course not. Every Sunday, I trust every day in some way, we confess that we have not loved God with all our heart nor our neighbor as ourselves perfectly. But If there is this real Holy Spirit-inspired love for God and love for neighbor, if that is within us, then we will honestly confess, think about this, then we will honestly confess that we don't love God as we ought, which in itself is an expression of our desire to love him more truly and more faithfully. Do you, do you see that? When, we, when, we, when we, we realize, I don't love God as I ought, but I want to. I want to. Lord, make me a Christian in my heart. That's what this verse is about. If there's a real and true love for our neighbor, is there? Is there in my heart a desire to promote the well-being of my neighbor? To protect my neighbor from harm and, and ill? and Do I want to honor and respect my neighbor because such love for my neighbor brings honor and glory to God? You see, the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law does not mean this, this absolute perfection of performance 
But it does mean a reorientation of our lives with love for God and the, at the very center of our lives and love for neighbor radiating out from that. It's a change. This is the reality of the promised new covenant in Christ God promised through the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I will write my law upon their hearts and I will cause them to walk in my ways and keep my commandments. Read Psalm 119. Oh Lord, how I delight in your law. Now, what does it not look like? And Paul speaks of the contrast here of the flesh and the spirit. So, for example, if someone attends worship on the Lord's day, religiously, strictly, every Sunday, because of outward compulsion of social expectation or family obligation or personal reputation or any other supposed to, And all the while, he or she is thinking about worldly plans for the afternoon. Has that person really fulfilled the fourth commandment? No. That's walking according to the flesh. It's ultimately self-centered and self-serving. The fourth commandment is fulfilled by those who walk according to the Spirit when they gather with joy together with God's people to worship God in spirit and truth because God is great and God is good and God is glorious and because they love God because He first loved them and proved it by sending His own Son to be condemned in the flesh for them. Right? If someone decides not To commit adultery. That's a good decision. For fear of being caught, fear of being exposed in public scandal, fear of humiliation, fear of financial ruin, has that person fulfilled the seventh commandment? No. Now, of course, it's still better not to commit adultery. It's still better to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Make no mistake. But that's not fulfilling the law of God. That person is still walking according to the flesh because all of those restraining reasons are all about him or her ultimately in a self-serving manner. There's no motivation of love for God and a desire to live for his glory and a hatred of sin because of the holiness of God. Now you think about it. A dog will obey a command because he fears the punishment of disobedience. But this is not the kind of obedience which truly fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. It is merely external obedience to an external law. And so walking according to the Spirit is to live with the law of God written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit and to have the Holy Spirit empowering us and motivating us to live lives of love for God and love for neighbor so that we obey not because we have to, but because we want to. And because we want to, we are very, very sorry, seriously sorry, whenever we fail to do so.
Does that make sense? The reason that we fail is that now even though as Christians, even though we have been set free by the Holy Spirit, set free from the dominion of sin over our lives, set free from the slavery of sin, we're now engaged in a spiritual conflict between the remaining influence of the flesh, the sinful nature within us, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us. In Romans 8, the word flesh refers to our fallen nature, our sinful nature, but it is also the atmosphere in which we live in this fallen world. Sinclair Ferguson explains it very helpfully in his book entitled Devoted to God. And Sinclair writes, Flesh is human nature under the dominion of sin, corrupted by it, powerless to reverse its effect. Thus Paul can not only speak about the flesh being in us, but about our being in the flesh, we live in, breathe the atmosphere, share the nature of a fallen world. Flesh is another way of describing the domination and impact on our lives of the present evil age. He goes on to say, however, as does Scripture, that true Christians are not in the flesh. We are no longer in Adam. That takes us back to Romans 5 and Romans 6. We have died to sin. We have died with Christ. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. But Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say that by definition, we are in Christ. We are possessed by the Spirit. We live now under His Lordship and are breathing His atmosphere. But this is where the conflict arises in the lives of true Christians. Although we are not in the flesh because we've been delivered from sin's dominion, Nevertheless, the flesh is still in us. Another way to say it is, sin does not reign over us, but it does remain within us. And we live in a fallen world full of distractions, full of temptations, and our great enemy, the devil, prowls about seeking whom he may devour. And so we are engaged in constant spiritual conflict against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so again, I'm going to quote Sinclair. I'm going to recommend his book, Devoted to God. He writes, We remain in the same old world which is infected by Adam's fall, as well as by the power of sin. We live in an atmosphere of the flesh. So long as this is true, we will find ourselves under threat from the old order. Like recovering addicts, we will need to make daily decisions and commitments to live out the new life. This involves conflict and requires resolute resistance. Because we have been brought out of the dominion of the flesh into the dominion of the spirit, we are responsible to live according to the principles of the new kingdom. Walk by the spirit. As Christians, we are faced with a daily choice between Walking according to the flesh or according to the spirit, the Christian life involves us in an ongoing, lifelong conflict. There will be many battles. Daily, hourly, we need to keep walking in the spirit, refusing to return to the flesh. We may have given our whole lives to Christ, but it will take the rest of our lives to work that out in practice. And we can do it only 
if we keep on walking in the Spirit. Again, let me quote Sinclair's last sentence. We may have given our whole lives to Christ, but it will take the rest of our lives to work that out in practice. And we can only do that if we keep walking in the Spirit. All of that from Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God. And this is the reason that, that, again, this gets down to practical, real-life Christian living. This is the reason that study and meditation on God's Word, the Scripture, is so important. This is the reason that faithful corporate worship on the Lord's Day, faithfulness in prayer, individually and corporately, continual self-examination, confession and repentance... Humble reception of the Lord's Supper. Spiritual fellowship with other believers. All of this is so vital for the continuing Christian life. Because these are the means by which we receive the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit into our daily lives. Without which, living the Christian life is impossible. So what does it mean in practical terms further? What does it look like in real life? Well, a very good cross-reference and parallel passage is found in Galatians chapter 5. And we read that already in our call to confession and repentance. The conflict between flesh and spirit. The apostle writes, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, envy, so forth, is listed in that passage. That's evidence that a person is living in the flesh and not by the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul is giving a very stern warning to people who profess faith in Christ. And people who live in that way persistently, consistently, without repentance, without a care, without a desire to obey the law of God, they are warned that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that we're walking by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, do you do that perfectly? I don't, but is there, is there a desire? Is there a, an orientation? Is there a, a prayer in my heart? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. May my life bear the fruit of the Spirit more fully. You see, this is the way of life that fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. And again, it is at its heart a matter of the heart. A life of love for God and love for neighbor. And by the way, really and truly, um, as you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, who do you see? Because it's the life of Jesus Christ. That's who you see. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the life of Jesus Christ reproduced in us. Not perfectly. Not yet perfectly. But you know, that's the ultimate goal and the ultimate promise. We will be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's our eternal destiny. 
Jesus Christ himself in us is the fruit of the Spirit because it is his Spirit who dwells in us. This takes us back to John Stott's point at the beginning of this sermon. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Because without the Holy Spirit, we do not have the life and presence and power of Jesus Christ with and within us. But with his presence, with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us, we are set free to live a life that pleases God. And to this we have been called. We are set free to live a life that bears fruit for his glory. And to this we have been called. We are set free to live a life that shows forth the life of Christ in us. And to this we have been called. Set free to live a life on the way of and on the way to eternal life. With the promise that no matter how hard the struggle is... No matter the decline and death of our mortal bodies, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, and therefore our destiny is resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, sharing in His glory and being conformed to His likeness in perfection. More on that, the Lord willing, next Sunday. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel of your Son, our Savior, who in perfect obedience to you and unimaginable love for us offered himself up as the propitiation for our sins. And we pray in his name, O Lord, that you will plant your word in our hearts, water it with your Holy Spirit, and cause it to spring forth and bear much fruit to the glory of your name. Through Christ our Savior, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. Responding to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. Amen.
be seated. Some of you may uh, have noticed I got rather excited, emphatic, and animated as we were just now reading through the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you get it. I'm not going to preach another sermon, but the, the, did you get it? That affirmation is the sermon. That affirmation is the sermon that we just heard, right? Therefore, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me, what does it say? Wholeheartedly ready and willing to do what? Live for Him. Right, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Two sermons in one day. That's the reason that we refer sometimes to these catechisms because they succinctly express what the Bible teaches. That's the point of catechism. Uh, In our celebrations and concerns uh, this morning, we are giving thanks to God that Bob and Felicia Kostelka are with us this morning and that Bob has uh, uh, recovered uh, well in the week past. We want also to continue to remember Whitney Alexander, former youth director uh, at First Presbyterian and Covenant Presbyterian, now pastor of missions at First Presbyterian Baton Rouge, uh, having uh, been seriously injured in an automobile accident. He will be in the rehab hospital in Baton Rouge uh, for a good while. Please keep Whitney in your prayers. And uh, uh, he has a Caring Bridge, Caring Bridge page. You can, um, the, the password is Whitney, and you can go on and send him your encouraging words. Please remember Dan and Bree Vanderwood and the whole Young Life uh, team and the students who left yesterday from Monroe to go to Colorado for Young Life Camp, a great experience, a great gospel experience for these uh, youth of our community. And we also uh, remember uh, Jack McDaniel uh, with our prayers and Christian sympathy. Uh, Jack lost his aunt, uh, his sister, Anne, who lived in Little Rock, uh, in the week past. Let us pray together. Our good and gracious Father, infinite, eternal, all-powerful, full of love and mercy and compassion, faithful and true. We give you thanks that we may call you our Father. You are the Holy One, and yet you dwell with those who are of a lowly and contrite spirit. You have given to us your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made a new and perfect way into your holy presence by his blood, that we might draw near to your throne with confidence to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. We thank you that you are a prayer-hearing God, that you invite, encourage, and even command us to pray because... You want us to be assured of your goodness and of your power. We thank you for every blessing, 
of life which we have received. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of light and life eternal. Receive our thanksgiving, dear Lord, for the gifts of life and sustenance and health and family and friendships and the fellowship that we have in Christ. Make us more grateful and more generous and more magnanimous toward those in need. We pray, our Father, for your church throughout the whole earth, especially our brothers and sisters who face violent persecution, the shedding of their own blood for Jesus' sake. We pray that the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of the church, and that they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would overcome all evil with good. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would strengthen us in our daily life to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, so that we might be effective witnesses of the love and power of Jesus Christ, that we might show forth his life to others and have a winsome and attractive aroma about us so that more and more people would be called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Your church would be built up. We pray, O Lord, with thanksgiving for your blessing upon our congregation. We continue to beseech you for the spirit of unity and peace and joy that dwells within us. And we pray for our sister congregations throughout this community, the state and the nation. You would build us up in the unity of faith, in the truth of your word, and that the gospel would be effective by every means in this community. We humble ourselves before you. You have placed us in this land in which we live, and on behalf of the nation, all those in authority, the president, the Congress, the judiciary, members of the cabinet, all those in positions of authority and influence in our local community and the state, oh Lord, we we commend into your wisdom, your righteousness, your power. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that in your great mercy, you would deliver this nation from chaos, confusion, from strife, from anarchy, and from totalitarianism. That you would restore the foundations of true liberty and true justice in accordance with your word and your law. That liberty and justice might flourish for all. And that the peace of Christ's kingdom, the peace of Christ's rule, would be more and more spread abroad through this land and through every nation. We pray as we look to that great and glorious day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Until that day, grant us grace to live as your faithful people. Our dear Lord, we commend into your care Andrew Brunson and pray that you would encourage his heart and comfort his wife, Noreen.
that his time uh, of imprisonment would be um, used of you for the advance of the gospel. But we pray for his speedy release. We pray for Whitney's good recovery, for his comfort of soul, and for your peace upon Phyllis. We pray for Dan and the Young Life team and all of those students. We pray that your Holy Spirit will move greatly in their lives, that they would know how much you love them, what you have done for them, and the life that you have for them in Jesus Christ. We commend into your loving care and compassion Jack and Tammy and pray the comfort of the gospel upon them. And we give you thanks for Bob's good recovery. We commend ourselves to you, O Lord. You know every word before it's on our tongue. You know our hearts. You know our hurts. You know our hopes. Where can we flee from your spirit? And so we cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray together as your children, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Freely, freely we have received. Freely let us give to the Lord the gifts that he's given unto us. And as we do so, let us offer to him our lives.
Gracious Father, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. We thank you for every blessing for body and soul which you have showered upon us. Bless and multiply this offering for the sake of your kingdom upon the earth. And with these tokens of our lives, we offer our hearts to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, that you may do his will, to the glory of his name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
They don't blow out. I guess I'll ask them. They won't blow out. Yes, I'm scheduled. I don't get it.